I wonder if you've ever had a backstage pass to a concert or an event, or maybe a field pass that got you down on the field for a sporting event, something that granted you special access down low or behind the scenes. Uh, years ago, I went with a friend to a concert, and we, at the concert, we won backstage passes, and so afterward, with our lanyards on and the little VIP cards attached, we walk up and we're ushered into the room where the band was and everybody around us in the crowd just burning with envy. It was great. It was great. You just can't help but feel special in moments like that. Maybe you got a fast pass at Disney World, right, where you get to skip the lines. You get special access that not everybody gets. It's a great feeling. Of course, on the flip side of that, we all know what it's like to be just part of the crowd and you watch everybody else maybe enter in backstage where you're not allowed to go, right? But it feels good to be a VIP when everybody else is just a P, right? Okay, now that may be, that's a silly illustration maybe, but it, I want us to get a sense of an issue that really plagued the early church. Uh, it was a hot button issue, especially for the Apostle Paul. It really, it, it haunted him throughout his ministry um, and it's really, this is the primary reason that he sat down to write this letter, the letter to the Galatians. Here, here's the issue in a nutshell. I'm going to go all the way back to the beginning here to give us a sense of this. Y'all, what we call the Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi, everybody's Bible's got one, the Old Testament, it's a wonderful story that's mainly about God's relationship with a people that he created called Israel and how God set them apart and called them to live for his glory and for his purpose and to be a blessing. In fact, God says, that way back in Genesis 12, that the whole world will find blessing through his chosen people, descended from Abraham, the people of Israel, the Jews. And God keeps that promise by sending his own son, who was born into the world as an Israelite of the tribe of Judah, it was Jesus who fulfilled God's ultimate glory and purpose and blessing. Where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded on their behalf for the sake of the world. Jesus is the Savior of the world, the Gospel of John tells us, because he died on the cross for our sins and then he rose from the grave. The result of all that that Jesus has done is that now anyone, Jew or non-Jew, what we call Gentiles, that's us, Anyone can be forgiven of their sin and be reconciled now to God. He has instituted a new covenant in which everyone who trusts in Jesus is saved. We are given new life in Christ. We receive the very Spirit of God to indwell us. We are brought into eternal relationship with our Heavenly Father. Now, that all sounds pretty great, doesn't it? But there were many Jews who had become Christians, who believed in Jesus, and yet they struggled to embrace this sudden inclusion of the Gentiles. Even though they acknowledged, yes, God has granted salvation to these outsiders, these Gentiles, and yet many of them could not cope with the idea that the Gentiles can just come right in for free. You can't get a VIP pass just by showing up. And so this message that a lot of the Jewish Christians began to teach was like this. Yes, the Gentiles may be saved through faith in Jesus, 
but they have to set themselves apart to God the same way we Jews always have, meaning they must be circumcised, they must keep the law of Moses, and they must abide by the Jewish customs and traditions. Only then can these outsiders truly become insiders like us. Only then can they really belong and really receive true access to God. Now, y'all, from the Jewish perspective, that's a teaching that made perfect sense because the law of Moses was always their most treasured possession. They can't just, you know, forget about it. They can't just view life somehow through a different lens all of a sudden. God has always set his people apart in specific ways. Why would that change now? That was their way of thinking. But that was a false message. And it's a message that Paul says only leads us to condemnation, not to a greater sense of salvation, the grace of Jesus, plus the works that we perform. That actually takes you away from Jesus. Because adding any human work to the grace of God nullifies the grace of God. And that God's grace is actually sufficient to save us. It's a message that says what Jesus has done is good and necessary, but not enough. And you must fill in the gaps. And so here's Paul's conviction that he shares with every waking breath. Jesus either saves us entirely through his own death and resurrection, or we can't be saved at all. Any salvation that depends on your own righteousness is bankrupt. Jesus alone saves us. Right? Now, I just spent a lot of time trying to ground us on this issue, this debate, because today in Galatians 2, Paul is going to bring this to a head. What we saw, if you were with us last week, or you can go back and find it on the website, but what we saw last week, Paul begins recounting a big portion of his own personal testimony as to how he became a Christian, but also how he became an apostle, a designated messenger of the gospel, and all of the years that followed his initial calling. Right? And the point Paul makes is that he received the gospel directly and divinely from Jesus and not from any man. It was Jesus who called Paul to be his witness, specifically, mainly, to the Gentiles. But there were other teachers who were disputing this, always coming in behind Paul and casting doubt on his authority that Paul was not really a true apostle and that his message was a twisted and watered-down version of what the true apostles, Peter, James, John, those guys, of what they preached. Paul was simply going rogue on his own. And so, y'all, what we see today is a really important piece of the puzzle where Paul finally makes it to Jerusalem and has a sit-down meeting in private with these, the big dogs, the big three, Peter, James, and John. And what comes from this meeting, which as we read it may not seem like all that much, Paul covers it pretty briefly, but what comes from this meeting is potentially changing the course of world history. Right? And, I, and I don't say that as, a, as an overstatement or an exaggeration. This is a significant moment in time. Is Paul preaching the same gospel as the other apostles? Do they accept him as their equal or not? Is he a VIP or is he just a P? All right, well, let's find out. Galatians chapter 2, verse 1. Right. 
Paul says, this is a continuation of his own narrative, then after an interval of 14 years, 14 years after his conversion, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. Now, Paul says he came to Jerusalem not because the apostles summoned him there, but because God told him to go. Okay? But while he was there, he met in private with what I call the big three, Peter, James, and John. Paul brought with him Barnabas and Titus. Right? Now, real quickly, Barnabas was a great friend and fellow minister with the big three apostles. He was not a stranger to them. They had a lot of history together with Barnabas. They, they named him Barnabas. I think his, his original name was Joseph. They named him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, because he was that precious to them. So Barnabas is, is, uh, is well known to their eyes. But Titus is not. Titus is a stranger to them. Titus was a Gentile who became a Christian under the ministry of Paul, and Paul held Titus in very high esteem. He considered Titus to be a picture of what God's grace is capable of doing in an outsider from Jewish terms, right? The, the, the former pagan Gentile Titus, look at this man as exhibit A of what God is doing among the Gentiles at large. So there are six men here in this picture sitting down to meet in private. And the importance of this meeting is clear right off the bat. You see at the end of verse 2, Paul says, for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. Now, what does he mean by that? The truth is this. If the big three apostles come out of this meeting declaring Paul's detractors are right, his message is illegitimate, he's not a true apostle, if that's their conclusion, that would have sent shockwaves throughout all the known world. That would have created a massive rift between the Jerusalem church and the Gentile churches. Paul knows. Paul knows his gospel is true. He received it from Jesus. He doesn't need their approval for his own sake. But he understands their disapproval would be shattering to his integrity and the integrity of his ministry because Peter, James, and John held such high clout for good reason, as disciples of Jesus and now apostles in Jerusalem. So if they don't come to terms here, the fallout could be catastrophic. But then we get a sense already in verse 3 of how this meeting is going. You see verse 3, but not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren, secretly brought in, who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. So already in verse 3, we're able to breathe a little bit of a sigh of relief. We get a sense of how things are going. Certainly Titus would have been relieved that the three apostles did not compel him, they did not force him to be circumcised, though he was a Greek, right? Why not? Because it was not the apostles' teaching 
that a person had to keep the law in order to be saved. That was never their message. And Paul makes it clear right on the back end of verse 3 that his issue was never with the apostles. They never had a problem. The problem was what Paul calls the false brethren, the fake Christians, who had sneaked in maliciously to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ, in order to bring us into bondage. Now, that language is meant to be just as strong and abrasive as it sounds. Paul is unhappy with these men, these false teachers. This was a sticking point for him, and it should be for us, and so I want to spend a few minutes on this point. Paul was never upset with people who simply had a little misinformation that needed correction. Paul didn't get upset with people who had an innocently misguided view of the message. What has Paul so angry is that certain people here had made it their goal to undermine the gospel and then knowingly tear down those who had come to believe it. And at its heart, this was the ambition of these fake Christians to take the liberty which we have in Christ and to bring us into bondage, to take those whom God has set free back into spiritual slavery. And so here's, here's the point here. I'm going to state it positively, and then we'll see, I hope, why the false teaching is so harmful. When Jesus saves us by his grace, he sets us free. Jesus said that from his own mouth. The apostles affirmed that as well. We're set free. Well, then we need to ask, what am I set free from? Set free from what? Well, free from condemnation. Free from guilt and judgment for sin. Free from seeking a righteousness of my own to save me. We're free from a lot more than that, by the way, but that'll do for now. We're set free. And so Paul is saying this, to go back now and impose the works of the law in addition to what Christ has done is actually to forsake the freedom we've been given and return again to slavery. Rather than Jesus being your new master who graciously makes you free, you are willingly returning to your old master, the law, which holds you in bondage. That's Paul's concern. And it's such an easy trap to walk into. You know, when I say it like that, in simple terms, we say, well, that's, of course, that's ridiculous. I would never do that. But check your heart on this, y'all. My heart. I, I, I fall into this trap all the time because I tend to diminish the great work that Jesus has done for me. I see it. I see what Jesus has done on the cross to forgive my sins, and I think, how wonderful that God has opened that door for me. But I wake up every morning, and there's this tinge in me, in my heart and mind, that says, now I've got to do the rest. God opened the door wide, but it's up to me to enter in and to operate through that open door and maintain what God has opened for me. If God's really going to love and accept me, then surely I've got to do my part. I have to prove myself. Nobody gets in for free. I've got to achieve my status as an insider. And once I'm in, I've got to maintain it. And y'all, that is the default position of every human heart, yours and mine. And it explains why so much of religion, basically all of religion, functions, functions just that way, right? Think about how any great religion of the world, including the, the self-made religion that perhaps we follow practically day by day, what does it say to us? 
It says God really loves those who are good. God loves those who do good, who follow the path, who keep the rules. That's how we earn and maintain God's love and acceptance. Paul calls that slavery. And that's a strong word. That's a word we don't like to use. But Paul is okay with that word because that's how strongly he feels. This is slavery, he says, and it's the kind of slavery you can never work your way out of. You can't make yourself free by seeking a righteousness of your own. So take a minute with me and let's let's ask an important question. This is going to come up again in Galatians, but it's important for us to reconcile this. Why does Paul hate God's law so much? What's he got against the law? I mean, the Ten Commandments. Is Paul saying that somehow the Ten Commandments are defective or even bad, harmful? No, and Paul is, is he's, he's clear throughout his letters. The law is good. The law is perfect, in fact, because it comes directly from the heart and mind of God. There's nothing at all defective about God's law. But when we misunderstand and misapply it, and when we misconstrue its purpose, see, that's where we get sideways. Paul wants to show us that the law does not serve the purpose that we're just so sure it's come to serve. The law is not meant to be our means of salvation. And that's where we get it wrong. If God has given me the Ten Commandments, then he's made it very simple. If I simply do what these things say, then I'll end up in heaven. And that is not the message of grace. That's not the message of God throughout the Bible. Not even the Old Testament gives us that conclusion, let alone the New. Here's the truth. And here's why Paul is so uh, convinced that we need this reminder, even, I would say, day after day, as to the purpose of the rules, the law of God can expose your sin, but it cannot cure your sin. It was not meant to. The law of God can show you what righteousness is, but it cannot make you righteous. It wasn't meant to. The law of God shows us our need for salvation, but the law cannot save us. It was never meant to. God never gave it for that purpose. And so we shouldn't look to it for that outcome. And I, I, I'm going to cheat over into Romans here for just a minute because I feel like in Romans 8, Paul gives us the perfect synopsis of this. What the law was never intended to do, God has done for us. Look at, look at Romans 8, verse 1 with me on the screen. Paul says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Best news ever. But how do we know? Why? For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, Jesus condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Y'all, there's, there's, that's a whole sermon's worth in that one paragraph. We preached it a couple years ago. You can go back and find it, I'm sure. What the law could not do for us, 
That's not a defect on God's part. Paul says it's because of the weakness of the flesh. The law demands a righteousness that sinners cannot achieve. And we were never meant to find our salvation through the law. What the law could not do, God did. Sending His own Son as our sacrifice for sin. Jesus, y'all, has taken our place. And I want you to, to think about it in these terms. This is very helpful for me. So I'll probably repeat it. Jesus took on Himself our condemnation that the law demands. And Jesus has also fulfilled for us, in us, the righteousness that the law requires. What does the law demand of sinners? Judgment. What does the law require of human beings? Righteousness. That's why the law is a terrible self-salvation project. Why do I wake up in the morning believing otherwise? I can't save myself. The law condemns me in my sin, and it exposes the righteousness I can never achieve. Look at what Jesus has done. He took the condemnation upon himself that the law demands. And he has fulfilled the righteousness that the law requires in us, in us, for us. He's done it all. And so we now receive life based on his works rather than death based on our works. Life comes based on what he's done in place of the death that I deserve because of what I've done. That's why the gospel is a message of grace alone, not grace plus anything that you and I can do. So when we go back to Galatians 2, you, you remember what Paul says in verse 5? Got a very Braveheart mentality here. These false brothers trying to bring us back into slavery. He says, we did not yield in subjection to them for even one hour. We didn't budge. So that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. If we budge and try to conciliate, if we bend just a little bit to what these false teachers want us to be, then we would pervert the gospel. We would nullify the grace of God. I will not budge. For your sake, I wouldn't dare do it, Paul says. The truth of the gospel is that important. Now, in case there was any doubt as to how this meeting goes, look at how the other apostles respond to Paul's message. Look at verse 6. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For he, God, who effectually worked for Peter and his apostleship to the circumcised, effectually worked in me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. Peter, James, and John add nothing to Paul's message. They subtract nothing. They edit nothing. It's the same message. The message he had always preached that he did not get from them to begin with. He never conferred with them about it. Fourteen years later, when they finally sit down to meet, their stamp of approval is clear and bold. 
This is the same message. And they recognize him as a true apostle, much to the chagrin of the false teachers, I'm sure. But there's a monumental agreement taking place right here. These are not two different messages, one for the Jews and one for the Gentiles. And there are not greater and lesser apostles in the church. Paul is not junior varsity to their varsity. This is so significant here because any divide that was apparent in the early church is being reduced to rubble now, day by day, as these apostles recognize one another, not just privately, but publicly. Now, there's something, you may have noticed this, Paul, you know, Paul can be kind of acerbic in his language, he can be a little, you know, he can be a little sharp, we'll see that really, truly next week. Notice how Paul kind of refers to these guys in what we just read. What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Is this like passive-aggressive Paul kind of like diminishing Peter, James, and John? Uh, Paul, no, Paul is simply combating a false narrative that elevated Peter, James, and John as the real apostles and everybody else is just window dressing at best. They're the true insiders with Jesus, and everybody else is just there. And y'all think about what that would mean. Well, if Peter, James, and John primarily preach to the Jews, that must mean that the Jews are still God's insiders. They're the real apple of his eye, and everybody else is just, you know, second rate. The real apostles are preaching to the real insiders. Paul says, no, God shows no partiality. A completely false perspective. When we recognize what the gospel is and what the gospel declares to us, regardless of where you came from, whether you were an insider or an outsider, and, and to use Paul's circumstance, whether you were circumcised or uncircumcised, whether you were very religious or agnostic, whether you were a very nice person or a nasty person, it doesn't matter at all because all may be saved by the very same grace. And therefore, we are all given equal status as beloved children of God. Everybody comes to the level ground of the cross of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what you were, where you came from, or what anybody else might hold against you. That's the message of the gospel. And so who they were makes no difference to me. We get that? God shows no partiality, not in apostleship, not in Jew or Gentile. All may be saved. And so, yes, Peter had been commissioned mainly to the Jews and Paul mainly to the Gentiles. But in either case, Paul says, the Lord had effectually worked in them both because the miraculous work of salvation was going beyond all human boundaries. And, you know, very quickly here, I, I, I think this is an important point for us to cement for ourselves. God's saving grace will transcend any such walls that we human beings try to build to keep it out. Any lines that we draw, and we've drawn many over the years, Christians are guilty of this, whether it be Jew or Gentile, as in Paul's day, or black or white, or male or female, conservative or liberal, Baptist or Presbyterian, you, any lines that we might try to draw as to who's inside and who's outside, any attempt that we make to squeeze people out, or to make some greater or some lesser. Grace makes no such distinctions. We all need the same mercy, 
we are all brought near to God by the same saving work of Jesus. We shouldn't try to build walls where God has already torn them down through the grace of his son. And so, y'all, I want to close today, I hope with a great affirmation for us, that when we speak of God's kingdom, there is no VIP lounge in God's kingdom. There are no insiders who get special access while the rest of us just stand on the outside craning our necks to try to see through the windows. Because God's kingdom is not built on human pedigree or human achievement or any other such status that we might hold dear in human terms. God's kingdom belongs to those who stand only on the grace of Jesus, a grace that is free for all who receive it. This is why, y'all think about Galatians 2, think about this meeting of these six men. The former pagan Gentile Titus enters the room with the great apostle Peter. And they stand on the same level ground. One an outsider, one an insider. And yet here they are together, one in Christ Jesus. May we see ourselves that way. We truly belong to God. We are on the inside because he has brought us in. Not by works, but only by faith in Christ. And may we embrace one another, brothers and sisters. May we draw no such lines of lesser or greater distinction. If we have trusted him, then we are one and the same. And that is a gift of God's grace for the church. Let's pray. Father, may this be, I pray, an encouragement to us this morning. As we consider what what made Paul so angry, Lord, I pray it would make us angry. Any impulse we have to try to add to what you have done in Christ, any impulse we have to think, that you wouldn't really accept me um, the way you have said, the way you've done. Lord, I pray that that we would that we that would not sit with us. That we would look at Jesus Christ and see total fulfillment, absolute and perfect salvation. And Lord, that we would be willing this morning, to receive him in full. And Lord, any impulse within us or outside of us, any, any uh, word, Lord, that should come to us from the outside that says he's not enough and points us back to ourselves, I pray, Lord, that we would uh, repudiate that message and cling to Jesus that we would run from any temptation we have that says God would not accept me uh, freely and puts us back into bondage. And Lord, I pray that we would, that we would um, uh, see ourselves this morning as truly free 
we really are free. We are free from condemnation. We are free from the power of sin. We are free from the old self, what we once were. And we are free from the bondage of looking into the mirror to find our acceptance and our righteousness. We get to look to the cross instead. And, and I pray, Lord, that, that, that that deep and real sense of freedom would overwhelm us, that it would lighten our steps, that we would, that we would feel free, not just declare it. And Lord, that, it would, that we would be uh, likewise filled with joy and gratitude and humility. And Lord, that we would become a kinder and more gracious people in, in how we treat one another because we've been set free from looking to ourselves, from comparing ourselves with others, from judging ourselves and each other uh, the way we once did from deciding who's in and who's out based on our own human um, uh, boundaries. We may look to Christ and I pray that we will. Lord, thank you for, for the meeting recorded here in Galatians 2. Thank you, Lord, that sinful men gathered in a room came to a divine conclusion, a perfect conclusion. The same gospel for the world. The free grace of God for all. And Lord, I, I, I trust this morning that in some true and miraculous sense, we are sitting here in this room, we bunch of Gentiles are sitting here right now because of things like this you once upon a time did to keep the door wide open for even people like me. Thank you, Lord, that you've loved us, that you sent your son for us to take us out of bondage and into freedom. Lord, let us live like we really believe it. In Christ's awesome name, amen.